Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. In our intro to episode 65 with Canadian writer B.W. Powell, we recommended watching the documentary series Hellier in preparation for the discussion that you're going to hear today. If you haven't watched Hellier, you won't get lost in this episode, which digs deeper into some of the topics that have been coming up a lot on the show lately. Topics like synchronicity, daimonic entities, and the potential pitfalls of paranormal inquiry. But you will be depriving yourself of what Phil and I think is a unique and uniquely illuminating example of documentary filmmaking. The series is on Prime Video, but you can also watch it for free on YouTube. Over the last couple of months, I've recommended Hellier to almost everyone I'm in regular contact with. I did this as a kind of experiment to see how different people would react to the series. And it turns out that in the circles I run in, Hellier has been as divisive as it appears to be in the world at large. A lot of people love it, but many roll their eyes after episode two and can't watch any more. Some in the latter camp are even fans of weird studies and the weird in general. What, for Phil and me, looked like a real synchronicity storm that the characters were getting caught up in, for them was a prime example of pareidoliac overreach. But I would argue that even if you decide that nothing in Hellier qualifies as the real thing, and I think that'll become increasingly difficult to do the longer you watch, the show is worth watching as a study of what it's like to inhabit a space of high strangeness, however, quote, subjective that space may actually be. For our part, we say hats off to Carl Pfeiffer, Greg and Dana Newkirk, Connor Randall, and Tyler Strand for creating an absolutely singular work that we'd be remiss not to discuss on Weird Studies. And today's episode is only part of that discussion, because Hellier has been a hot topic on the Weird Studies Patreon for a few weeks already. Yet another reason to throw caution to the wind and support our show by joining one of the three tiers we have on offer. And if you've done that already, then hats off to you too. Over the last year, Patreon has turned Weird Studies from a passion project into an integral part of our careers, and we have you to thank for it. And now on with Weird Studies, episode 67. Or is it 93? On the hit weird series Hellier, we hope you enjoy our conversation. Oh dear. So, where do we even start? the thing about Hellier is that it's already been kind of uh, buzzing in the the occult sphere, the occult, the weirdosphere, yeah, the weirdosphere, like yeah, the weirdosphere um, for some time. So we're a little bit we're coming at it a little late, but hopefully we'll have new things to contribute. I'll say in advance, 
if you haven't, you, the listener at home, if you haven't watched Hellier through to the end, I really suggest you do before listening to this episode because I'm usually not much of one for avoiding spoilers. I think the oversensitivity to spoiling things is a childish, regressive impulse of our age. Hamlet but... dies. Why'd you tell me? You've ruined <laughs> Wait. Hamlet. <laughs> Wait, Jesus Christ came back? The Greeks win the Trojan War? <laughs> Fuck, you fucking spoiled the Iliad for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> but in this case, I'm going to kind of insist that it does matter if you know where this is going. Because I'm going to just say right at the front. For me, this show is really significant. It's really powerful. In part, at any rate, because... I've never seen any program, any work of expressive culture that so perfectly captures the feeling of living in diviner's time, living within a magical narrative. Well, I would compare, I, I would compare Hellier to something like Vallis, which um, comes pretty okay, close. Yes. Yeah, right. But in terms of like pop, but, pop culture. But, but also Vallis is a book, it's a novel. Mm -hmm. And when you're reading it, to some extent, the book is on your time. You choose when you pick it up, and you're choosing the pace at which you're going through it. And right. the sense of time in a novel certainly is something that can be sculpted by the novelist. But there is an actual kind of chronos mm. of watch, watching a show. There's a specific uh, latticework of clock time that you're on when you're watching a show. Yeah. And... So an artist can play with that to create that feeling of succession. It's like the difference between reading a score of a piece of music and listening to the piece of music. Right. Just by virtue of the medium, I think you're able to let the revelation of new synchronicities pop in a way that's felt, you know, it's, a, it's an embodied feeling. And so that's not to downplay all of those wonderful literary works that do in fact give us this strangely immersive sense of what it is to live in a magical time. But it's a trip. Hellier, it's a trip. It's like you, it's like taking a drug. Yeah. Yeah. But just in the name of best practices, let's just uh, give us a, a quick summary of, of what the show is about. It's a documentary series, so it's all factual. Um, you can see it on YouTube for free and also on Amazon Prime. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's it follows a group of paranormal investigators as they go down a real rabbit hole of synchronistic weirdness. Mm. Um, it starts with some bizarre emails and then leads to a trip to Kentucky to investigate the possibility of goblins haunting the hills of uh, a town, the surrounding a town called Hellier. And then from there, it just goes deeper and deeper into kind of a Chapel Perilous world where just synchronicities are piling up. Uh, sometimes they're really staggeringly amazing uh, and on a few occasions. That's that's basically the premise. That's all you need to know, yeah. I guess. Um, it's something else. And it's caused quite a splash in the weirdosphere, exactly for the reason that Phil just uh, said, that's that... We, we're all used to these ghost hunter shows and UFO hunting shows and is there a Bigfoot shows and they're all done with a specific kind of aesthetic. It looks like the aesthetic was developed by people who don't really believe this stuff. 
They're trying yes. to sell it as some kind of, you know, they're trying to fit it into a kind of Hollywoody kind of. Uh, um, it's just normie entertainment. Right, exactly. And it's, I think that, I think Greg, uh, one of the main characters, Greg Newkirk. And when I say characters in this case, I'm talking about real people. But in the story, um, he's one of the main protagonists. He says that this is a show for people people who care, people who've had their minds opened and people mm-hmm. who are ready to entertain. Because yeah, we, we talked about this before we recorded, Phil, it's that you wonder how much someone who's very kind of closed off, someone who's not willing to take that first little leap into the weird, that first little step, uh, mm-hmm. might just stop watching after episode two and going, yeah. well, there's nothing here. Um, right. So there is a kind of a buy-in that's required on the viewer's part. But for those and of us who And if you go to Amazon able- and look at the user reviews, you can totally see that. Yeah. There's a lot of five-star reviews and almost as many one-star reviews, which is a little bit different from the usual kind of curve. And all the one-star reviews are people who just do not understand. Like, it's like they're looking at a blank screen. They can't see what the people who put the five-star reviews, right. they can't see what they're seeing. Exactly. And you can compare that to other shows like Twin Peaks is similar. Um, There's just a certain sensitivity or sensibility that the show requires. And, you know, as Oscar Wilde said, when the critics are divided, the artist is at one with himself, you know? So I I would say (laughs) that split, that kind of even split between five stars and one star reviews is kind of indicative of how important this show is and how new it is in a sense. New in terms of cultural expression, but new... Precisely because it's expressing something that many of us have lived and have not been able to translate into a kind of consumable cultural object. There's something about the fact that they were able to take this experience and translate it to the screen. And credit for that goes to Carl Pfeiffer, the director, who is a very talented dude. Um, That's the new thing. It's, It's not the content that's new. I mean, a lot of us have been experiencing this sort of thing for a long time, although there is some newness there too. There's something going on in this show that's quite new. But just the way that it engages with the daimonic on its own terms, the way that it yeah. it speaks in an imaginal language about the imaginal in a documentary form. I mean, there are some precedents here. We, we did a whole show on the films of Rodney Asher, and I actually yeah. messaged uh, Rodney um, encouraging him to watch this show. I don't know if he has. Did you ever listen to the episode we did on his stuff? He, yes, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really liked it. Yeah, he was... Oh. Yeah. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. He seemed enthusiastic about watching Hellier too, so hopefully he, he'll watch it. I, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that Carl Pfeiffer knows uh, Rodney Asher's films because Asher has that gift, that knack for negative capability in his filmmaking, that kind of Absolutely. suspension of disbelief, which is the first step for uh, entering into this type of terrain. So... Mm-hmm. Um, there has been this movement in documentary of tra- making documentaries that are about the imaginal, but that are, that are themselves also imaginal. So I think that Hellier inserts itself into this new emerging tradition, which includes the films of Rodney Asher and uh, mm. so a few others. So th- it's this is part of a thing going on right now in the culture, which makes me very happy. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Carl Pfeiffer's directorial contribution to Hellier because, you know, if you're used to the sort of lowbrow ghost hunting shows, then you're used to the idea that film is only a delivery device for a certain kind of entertainment. 
it's not something you're going to be paying attention to for its own stylistic or aesthetic choices. But in this case, this is a film that really creates a mood or mm. a, I shouldn't say a film, a documentary series, but it feels like a film. It has something of the... It's a film. They call them chapters for a reason. I would see it as a film. They, they even yeah. split into two seasons, but to me it feels like one thing. Anyways, but yeah. Well, one thing that I find interesting is how consistently the lighting, like there's a kind of a color palette that runs throughout the show. You know, interior scenes always have a kind of greenish cast. Mm-hmm. The whole thing has a kind of greenish cast, so yeah, yeah, Look. yeah. Even the exterior scenes, it's true. I mean, when you're when you're working with very small budgets like they have, I think their budget for the first season was like fifteen thousand. That's probably just a number they put into IMDb. They just did it on their own time, right? You know, they were just making a movie as a group of friends, and um, I think that when you're working with that type of budget, post production, color correction, that sort of thing becomes extremely useful for balancing scenes. So you, you want to pick a kind of like hard, very kind of assertive color palette so that you can balance scenes with very different lighting conditions because you're not lighting mm. the scenes. Mm. So you're not in control of the natural light as much. So you want to create a palette to, wow, to give it a look. And it, as in all the best cases, limitation leads to creativity and leads to genius because the limitations they had are partially responsible for the aesthetic the show has. He had to yeah. he had to create a palette for it to make it work aesthetically. And because of that, it encouraged him to go and develop this very cool, uh, surreal palette, which really does set a mood. I agree. There's this greenish tinge to the whole thing. And they were smart enough also to like reflect that palette in the poster and in the, the accompanying yeah. art. And it's all kind of one beautiful unit. And that's I'm assuming Carl did all the graphics for it and the credit sequence. There are a number of things about this show that are aesthetically really striking. I like that you refer to Greg Newkirk as a character. And by extension, the other people who we see repeatedly in this show are characters as well. The thing about that is, this is actually something that we have said over and over again in the show from the very beginning our aesthetic conception of the cosmos, whereby things that actually happen to us in our lives are stories. And we are characters in those stories. And, you know, the feeling that I got very strongly watching Hellier, that you're feeling this pileup of weirdness and synchronicity. You're feeling that in the clock time of the film, which is also creating the sense of timing of Kairos. Um, that is the creation of a story from the story of this investigation, which is a true story. Uh, there's a fine line between the sense of story and the sense of like, oh, this is something that actually happened in story as in an artifact that conveys a sense of a story. Um, the boundary between those things is indeterminate. And I think that the characterization of the Newkirks, uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk, they're married, by the way, a husband and wife team of paranormal investigators. Um, Carl, their filmmaker, uh, Tyler, I forget his last name. What's his last name? Tyler Strand. Tyler Strand, their very enthusiastic, go-getting assistant, associate. Recon man. Yeah. Recon man. And Connor. Uh, and 
And Connor. Who's thoughtful and really sees the big picture. Um, yeah. I really appreciated his presence. I um, liked him a lot, especially as the show goes along. At first, I'm like, I don't know exactly what he's doing. And then after a while, you realize like, oh, he is one of those dudes who hangs back, watches, reflects, and is, yeah, maintaining the big picture. Yeah. Interestingly, Carl and Connor were the resident ghost hunters at the Stanley Hotel, which is the hotel uh, yeah. that served as a model for Kubrick's The Shining. That was their job before they did this. They were the the resident parapsychologists at the Stanley Hotel. So they were producing, mm. they were making content for the hotel. And then from there, they went and did, uh, did the Hellier show, from what I understand. Well, actually, that gives us a decent point of entry, which is simply saying, how did they meet? That's the first synchronicity, the synchronicity that started it all. How Carl and Connor ended up hooking up with Dana and Greg. Right. Um, and uh, I guess Tyler was always sort of there as somebody that Greg and Dana had worked with in previous projects, I guess. Yeah. And they told him about their project. And so when he experienced his own synchronicity, you know, connecting him to the case, that he calls him up in season one. And then in season two becomes a kind of a one of the protagonists, one of the main characters. Right. Yeah. Right, right. But, they uh, kind of knew of each other. There was a, something on, I, I don't remember the details of how they all hooked up. Do you remember? Yeah. You know, they would like shout at each other on Twitter right. or whatever. And it was a particular synchronicity where the Planet Weird Twitter has some kind of auto-loading feature where, oh, right. you know, there's a couple of thousand stories that they have in the hopper and this thing will automatically just randomly select one of them, old content, to keep the churn of old content. And right around the time that Carl and Greg had a kind of some sort of connection about the Kentucky Goblin case in its very, very first, I don't know, in its very beginning... Right after, like a few minutes after this connection, that auto-loading Twitter bot loaded up one of two stories that were in this sort of like very deep archive about the Kentucky Goblin case. And Carl was like, oh, I see what you did there. And Greg was like, no, I didn't do anything. That's that's random. Right. It just happened randomly. And as so often happens, the modern world is full of randomizing agents that are what the jazz composer John Benson Brooks called objects with saturation value. You know, things that can generate a lot of information, an informationally dense field, which offers a wide field of play for synchronicity and for like meaningful connections. And from this one meaningful connection, Carl felt, I guess, a pretty familiar feeling of having his coat pulled, of, of something tugging at his sleeve saying, you should look at this. And so I think that was the beginning of their connection. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this related to an email that um, Greg Newkirk got from uh, a man named, D named David M. Christie, a self-proclaimed doctor, a doctor of what, who knows, uh, who lived in Hellier and who wrote Greg, <laughs> he sent an email to a website that Greg had maintained in the past when he was young and doing like kind of like crazy kid ghost hunting stuff. Yeah. And like when he was a boy. Yeah. When he was a this, teenager. There was, 
as he points out, there's nothing about that website that makes you think, ah, competent professional paranormal investigators. Especially that I it, should go yeah. to them with my life or death problem. Right. It's like a ridiculous website with stupid photos on it of these kids holding BB guns and hatchets and so on and trying to look badass in the woods. Exactly. And yet, uh, and this David Christie guy sent an email to that address specifically to Greg, asking him for help in a case of like goblin invasion. Basically, this guy's house was being terrorized by goblins from the Kentucky Hills in the middle of the night. The goblins were tapping on his window, scaring his kids, playing in the yard. And the email was actually, it was quite well written, I thought. It's very effective. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, spooky. And, yeah, it's spooky as hell. And um Greg's interest was piqued at this point, and that's what kind of opens up the whole case. That's what leads them down that rabbit hole. And one of the details in that initial email where this David Christie guy is asking for help dealing with these goblins uh, is that David Christie tells Greg that he got Greg's name from a man named Terry Rist, or Terry Reist, as we later learn. Um, W-R-I-S-T-E. Yeah. Which Greg immediately thinks is a, a joke, a, a nom de guerre of some sort, because it's yeah, like, like terrorist, terror, yeah, right? It sounds like terrorist, uh, which, like, naturally enough, that's what you'd think. And but then a little later on, they get an email from Terry Rist because they go down to Hellier. So this is before the documentary begins, like um, before Carl Pfeiffer gets involved at all. Dana and Greg do a road trip to Hellier. And then they go home and then they get a, an email later on saying, from Terry Rist saying, why did you give up? You were so close. You were so close. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, an cryptic passage about the ink and the black. And that's, anyway, so there's a whole bunch and of stuff. third order. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and we can get into some of that. But, but let's just assume that people have watched it so we don't have to go through, because there's too many details, obviously. There's just so many twists yeah. and turns. Yeah. 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 But that's what gets it all going. But of course... Very soon they realize it's not just about goblins. Although I resent that a little bit because I think goblins are fucking interesting. And whenever, <laughs> whenever there's, I get the impression that they they want us to forget about the goblins. I'm like, no, 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 no. Okay, I'll I'll entertain Pan and 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 the Night of Pan and uh, the Blue Star and the Star Sapphire Ritual and Crowley. I'll, I'm okay with all that, but the goblins remain extremely interesting to me. <laughs> I don't want right. to let go of the goblins. But it quickly becomes about more than goblins. Um, well, where does the phrase Hellier was just a symptom? Where does that come from? Was that from one of Terry Rist's yes. emails? Yes. Hellier was just a symptom. And that becomes increasingly important because they feel drawn into a vortex of synchronicity, of weirdness, high, the highest weirdness, and very quickly come to feel that the stakes of what starts off as a fun little paranormal investigation into goblins coming out of disused mines in the Kentucky Hills, you know, they become quickly convinced that, or not, I don't know about quickly convinced, but they become convinced that this is true, that Hellier was just a symptom, that there's something of which Hellier is an expression, but something much larger than just Hellier. Yes. It's in season two that the big connections are made, the connection with Crowley specifically, which is super important because Terry Rist, as it turns out, was, if not a Thelemite, then someone very familiar with Thelema, which is the tradition founded by Aleister Crowley, and was using a cipher in his emails, as we find out eventually, 
Okay, well, there, here's the case. It's this thing. So once they... <laughs> How do you even fucking talk about this? Yeah. It's like trying to unravel the world's largest ball of twine. I know. I was worried about this, but we'll, we'll get to something. Um, so when when uh, Greg first got the emails from Terry Rist, he was like, who is this guy? So, he, of course, he Googles the name Terry Rist, and the only reference to a Terry Rist he can find is in this book, um, The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts by Alan Greenfield. In there, there was an appendix at the end of the book, which is an interview with a man called Terry Rist. And in this interview, Terry Rist um, describes going into these tunnels in Nevada, I think, uh, and and basically getting into like, like gunfights with yeah. little goblins that inhabit these caves under the well, He's United apparently States. a Vietnam vet and yeah. was a tunnel rat. A tunnel and rat, then, yeah. And then used his uh, abilities as a tunnel rat to hunt these paranormal creatures. Right. But also in this interview, Terry Riss describes how he found Indrid Cold using the secret cipher of the Euphonauts. Well, what, okay, first of all, since you've read it and I haven't, you can explain something to me. What exactly is the cipher and what does it allow you to do? Okay, great. So Alan Greenfield is a former Thelemite. He left the, uh, I don't know if it was the OTO, there's a whole bunch of Thelemic orders, but he left it all behind. He was disillusioned with it, but he remained obviously very interested in the lore and what Crowley did and remains a big fan of Crowley. And um, the secret cipher of the euphonauts, as he calls it, I think that the real name he had for it was the cipher of the secret chiefs. The euphonauts are basically the ascended masters. So if you know anything about theosophy, and 19th century theosophical movements, they were predicated on the existence of ascended masters, humans who had kind of like bodhisattvas uh, transcended our mortal condition to inhabit a kind of like other dimension and who were concerned with the progress of humanity on earth and with also making humanity evolve to its next stage of evolution. So the, those are the euphonauts. So according to, to Greenfield, Aleister Crowley's Book of the Law is a coded text. The Book of the Law was channeled to Crowley through his wife, Rose, in Cairo in 1904, I think, or 1907. So Crowley, basically, the Book of the Law is a channeled text that Crowley thought came to him from an entity called Iwas. And Iwas was either an ascended master or some kind of daimonic entity, a god, and um, gave us the Book of the Law which for Crowley becomes the kind of Bible of the Aeon of Horus, the New Age. But there's a hint in the text that the whole book of the law is also coded. It's a code. But the cipher, the, the, the key to the code, will remain unavailable to Crowley, it says. But one of his successors will crack it. And as it turns out, Frater Akkad, who was Crowley's chosen protege, his, uh, he, his chosen successor... Um, did. One of them anyway. Yeah, one of them, yeah, because it, it was complicated. But uh, he did crack the first three letters of the cipher, L-A-W, law, right? Hmm. So basically, the cipher is a, it's a gematria. The cipher allows you to ascribe a, nu a numeric value to each of the letters in the English alphabet so that then you can take any word you want, add up the numeric value of its letters, and then find its equivalent, its numerological equivalent in the book of the law. And that tells you things about what these entities want us to know, okay? So for instance, 
Terry Wrist puts in Indrid Cold, right? The famous entity that becomes involved in the Mothman case that John Keel wrote about and comes up with a bunch of stuff, ink and black and all these other connections, which allow him to actually find Indrid Cold's address where Indrid Cold's hiding out. So that becomes a big part of the, of the Hellier uh, story. So that's the secret cipher of the Euphonauts. So just to be clear, the secret cipher was figured out within the kind of Thelemic world and was used within Thelema. But what Greenfield did- so, Gr- so Greenfield didn't invent this. No, he didn't. It was cracked by someone else, a woman in the 80s. She's the, f- the one who finally made a computer program that was able to come up with all the different variants of the cipher because ah, there, there are okay. many possible, you can use the key that Akkad found to generate a number of ciphers. And it's the sixth cipher that the computer program came up with oh, that they okay. use, okay? Mm. But the cipher could change, but it's always the same key. So if the cipher changes, then you can still find the same key to find another variant. But that's, that's technical stuff. It's not that important. The point is that it existed purely within the kind of occult world until Greenfield started applying the cipher to the bizarre names uh, uh, that UFO contactees came up with. People like right. Indrid Cold or um, like Lanulos, which was the planet that Indrid Cold supposedly came from. Like all these UFO contactees in the 50s and 60s were in contact with Venusians or people from other planets who had really absurd and silly names and had equally silly names for their planets or at least silly to our ears. And so Greenfield was like, what's with all these names? So he put the names through the cipher and then came up with all this stuff. Like when you Mm. put through the cipher, it's like all these UFO contactees are actually communicating with entities that are involved, that were involved with what Crowley was doing. Yeah. So Greenfield's thesis is that the secret cipher of the euphonauts is the way that these aliens communicate with one another on Earth. Mm, and, And we've finally cracked it. But they're also trying to communicate with us through it, some of them. And this is actually really useful for Hellier because it gives the backdrop, the kind of backstory for Hellier. Like Hellier, if you watch it, it's, it's constantly haunted by Greenfield. Greenfield yeah. is kind of like almost like kind of Svengali character, kind of like, like looming over the city, like, whoa. And, and just you know, <laughs> everything's happening in his ambit, right? And for a while, the investigative team are convinced that Terry Rist never existed, that it's a pseudonym for... Alan Greenfield. But then when they finally meet Greenfield and towards the end of the second season, it becomes clear that that's not the case. Yeah. At least it seems clear. At least it seems clear. I'm still, I'm still on the fence. Like who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Like, uh, in a way, because you're in a hall of, you end up in a hall of mirrors in this uh, series. Yes, you do. And, And my feeling is that Greenfield probably did make up Terry Wrist. I'm just reading the transcript of the interview in the secret cipher. And it just feels like the way you'd write an inter- the way you'd you'd write an interview if you were putting an interview into a novel, you know, it's kind of like mm. just the way that I don't know. Maybe it was just because he was stagey. maybe he was just transcribing it from memory. So, but it feels yeah. a little stagey to me. But who knows? Maybe he made up Terry Riss, but then Terry Riss ended up existing, right? <laughs> ended up yeah. So a kind of tulpa, right? So maybe something like that. Who knows? These kind of reversals of causality figure, the deeper you get into the Chapel Perilous kind of supersaturation of of, uh, synchronicity in this show. For example, there's one bit where they had some years previously done 
a working that was kind of like a reverse alien abduction thing where they got somebody who had never been abducted by aliens or at least had never reported this, didn't believe in aliens and was participating in this whole thing as a lark. And they got a professional hypnotist to hypnotize him and ask him to walk through an abductee experience, which was so terrifyingly vivid and real for this guy that everybody was just sort of like, wait, did we just uncover something that actually happened to him? And you have to contemplate the possibility that actually what had happened was that they didn't implant memories, that they discovered memories. And it was like a monumental synchronicity that they had chosen that particular guy right. to I interview in this peculiar way. And so th those kinds of reversals of causality become commonplace as you get deeper and deeper into the churn. Like what Eric Wargo would call a retrocausative, retrocausation. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And so who knows what's going on with Terry Riss. But the point is that in his book, Greenfield has a chapter where he really kind of sets the stage or describes the world in which all of this is taking place. And they don't mention it on Hellier, but I think that it, once you know it, you kind of see Hellier in light of this very kind of paranoid universe that Greenfield uh, describes. So he's basically describing a, a situation where we have two main groups of aliens. Let's call them that for lack of a better term. There's the Great White Brotherhood and there, there's the Black Lodge. That's actually the term they use which I've seen, I've come across before, but then the, the connection with Twin Peaks is immediate. Right. And the Black Lodge also includes, probably mainly includes black magicians. Uh, so evil sorcerers on earth who are in touch with these evil entities out there, either in space or in some interdimensional place, who knows. And the there's a war between the Great White Brotherhood and the Black Lodge. And white and black here, by the way, not at all tracking onto like the way people talk about race in the United States and Canada. Doesn't have anything to do with like black people or anything. No, of course not, no. Um, and so that's the kind of universe that I saw as I'm reading the book, that's what I'm plunged into. And Greenfield himself is weird because he, he, he's describing all this stuff and he's describing how, for instance, all these evil Tibetan sorcerers went to Berlin in the 20s during the whole, you know, um, the upheaval in Tibet, uh, one of them, this is crazy actually, one of them went from Tibet to Berlin where he became a consultant to kind of like advisor to Hitler, supposedly. Um, his name was, or he was known as the man with the green gloves. And whenever there's a, a term or a phrase that Greenfield deciphers in, in the book, he puts it in all caps. But this, the man with the green gloves was just in small caps. It was just like an anecdote. He was saying there was this, for example, there's this one black magician called the man with the green gloves in Berlin. He was a Tibetan and Hitler would seek out his advice. So I, just for the hell of it, I put the man with the green gloves through the cipher and it comes up with the phrase from the book of the law, I will give you a war engine, hmm. which is precisely Whoa. what this Tibetan... <laughs> black magician would have done with Hitler in the 20s Whoa. and in 30s. So, um, Whoa. so that really, okay. that really kind of took me by surprise. Uh, I experiment, I experimented with it, uh, some more and came up with interesting results, not all of which I want to share because some of them are personal, but yeah, very potent results. So interesting. I don't know what to make of that, but so you can see why in the show, 
Greenfield is very kind of cautious. Uh, he's encouraging them to keep going because he believes that ultimately the White Brotherhood is behind this. But he, he's also aware that there's this Black Lodge that's involved all the time that can fuck you up big time. So, uh, I don't know. Fuck. They're operating a jackhammer outside. This fucking sucks. I don't know. There's. Hold it on. looks like they're setting up to do some fairly major shit right outside my window. That's the black... Yeah, I doubt... That's the black lodge, man. Yeah. This fucking pisses me off. God damn it. I mean, there's nothing to do about it, but... I'm telling you, man. They're interfering. Yeah, you know... Shit like this just happens all the fucking time when you're trying to deal with this stuff. Weird fucking little things. Sometimes not enough to stop you, but enough to annoy you or perplex you. It's fucking irritating. Oh, yeah, I tell you what. You know what? Let's let universe is playing with us. Let's play with the universe. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do this shit. Okay. So, well, I was finished there. Do you have any thoughts on what I said? <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, God. Uh, so yeah. I have actually was recently reading Frater Akkad in a totally different context. I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, this was all news to me. I know Frater Akkad because he wrote the most important occult commentary on Richard Wagner's opera Parsifal. He actually took Frater Parsifal as his name when he switched orders at some point. Oh, yeah. is that a fact? Yeah, that was his guide. That was his man. Arsenal. How did you find out all this stuff about him? Is that in that book? No. Um, I mean, I don't know. Just over the years. I don't know where I got that. I just saw it somewhere. I don't remember where. Maybe it was online. It's funny. Yeah, I don't know much about the guy in any event. So He was Canadian. Yeah, I remember reading that somewhere. The whole business of like the White Lodge or the, you know, the secret chiefs, as they're called in the theosophical circles... The idea that there are human beings who, upon attaining some kind of ultimate enlightenment, instead of transcending the material plane, choose, like bodhisattvas, to remain, to help less ascended, less enlightened beings achieve their purpose and to allow the cosmos to achieve its purpose. That idea, on the one hand, sounds like, it sounds corny. It sounds very much like the cultural expression of 
occult culture at a much more optimistic time in uh, certainly Western cultural development. Yeah. You know, theosophy always seems so optimistic and all of this stuff about the secret chiefs, the idea that there is a secret group of ascended masters in a cave in Tibet somewhere or whatever the fuck, like pulling strings to ensure the proper development of the human species. That feels like it bears the impress of a kind of Victorian, not progressive in the modern sense of woke, but progressive in the sense that, you know, there's a logic to history. And, and the Whig sense, yeah, and the Hegelian kind yeah, of... Yeah, work, every day yeah. in every way we are getting better and better. Yeah. Which is something that occult groups now, I mean, you think of like what occult orders or occult movements seem to carry forth the spirit of the last few decades. I would say chaos magic more than anything else. For example, I think about expression of it with someone like Grant Morrison and in his Invisibles comic series, or Genesis Purge and their multi-decade long kind of musical slash magical working uh, with Throbbing Gristle and the Temple of Psychic Youth and so on. Actually, Alex Reed, one of our listeners and who we've mentioned on the show before, wrote, I think, an absolutely terrific book on industrial music that gets deep into some of the esoteric history of uh, industrial music and, and Genesis Purge in particular. I never know whether you're supposed to say Purge or Porridge, uh, but... Anyway, perhaps one of our listeners can correct me. But, you know, if you look at those kind of cultural expressions, it's much, much darker. I mean, The Invisibles actually still has something of that secret chief's flavor to it, but it's been transmogrified into the idea of like a badass terrorist cell. They're sort of like freedom fighters slash terrorists. And the tone of the whole thing is just a lot grimmer and darker and more punk. It's cool and edgy. Uh, aesthetically speaking, its expression is totally different from Blavatsky's theosophy or Andy Besant's theosophy. But sort of the thing I'm trying to get out here is that uh, although there's always a rhetoric of perennialism in occult orders, we were talking about you know perennial truths, truths that don't go away. And I'm sympathetic to that too. I'm not totally poo-pooing it. Nevertheless, you can see the aesthetics and the kind of cultural expression of different occult revivals or occult moments. You can see how they always have this kind of um, flavor of their times. So you can see it sort of in the ways that different occult orders or occult movements appropriate science. You know, there's a period of time in the 19th century where everything was put in terms of magnetism and electricity because that was the uh, well. That's shit. still around with quantum theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just yeah. but as the scientific as the scientific tenor changes, so too do the appropriations of it. And so, you know, when Einstein's relativity theory was making a big splash, everything was put in terms of fourth dimensions. Yeah, uh, and and then when people really started digesting some of the findings of quantum mechanics. Suddenly everything was quantum physics, uh, which you find, by the way, a lot in chaos magic and particularly in Peter Carroll's work. So that's still a kind of contemporary concern. But my point is the secret chief's idea on the one hand feels like it's a relic of another age. But on the other hand, perhaps the secret chief's mythos is expressed a bit 
more darkly and more conspiratorially nowadays, but it's been around for a long time. I mean, the Rosicrucian order is in many ways kind of the Western progenitor of this idea. Although now that I'm thinking of it, it probably didn't start. It's probably been around for much longer than that. The fate of, of humanity and the world has always been hanging in the balance. You know, the Egyptians had to perform rites to, um, who was the god? Who, it was Osiris was the sun, right? Who went down into the underworld each day and came back. They had to perform rites. If they didn't perform the proper rituals each night, then he wouldn't make it through and come up again. Right. There's always right. been in the Mayans where, in the Aztecs, were performing sacrifice after sacrifice in order to keep the universe stable. Because if they gave up, if they stopped doing what they did, the whole thing would just collapse. But I agree. I agree that in the Victorian era, this kind of like Pollyanna spirit of infinite progress comes into the fore. And it's not just in the occult movement. It's across European culture. It's just the idea mm. that, oh, it's finally over. We finally did it. We figured it out. Yeah, exactly. And that collapses. And it collapses in the occult movement because of the number of tragedies. I mean, if you look at the, his, the modern history of the occult, stories don't end well. <laughs> you know, like... No, it's true. People don't end up in a good place. And we could add to the examples you just listed there of like of, of how the secret chief's idea transforms into a more rebellious, almost kind of a more Star Wars kind of uh, yeah. uh, feeling. Because in Star Wars, if you look at it objectively, well, the rebels are terrorists <laughs> uh, who are, you know, um, trying to sabotage the imperial system. Um, mm -hmm. They are the underdogs. Well, the secret chiefs become the underdogs in the 20th century. Another thing I wanted to say, though, and the reason I'm very, very, very wary of this type of secret chiefs, Black Lodge stuff, is that everybody says they're with the White Brotherhood and with and the others are with the Black Lodge. Yeah, that's and, true. And uh, like Kenneth Grant thought he was with the White Brotherhood. And mm -hmm. um, if you read his work, I mean, there's it's dark as shit. Like he he wanted to open up the gate for Typhon and all these Cthulhu monsters to come through. Um, Jung, who was deep into this stuff and had visions at the same time Crowley has, or just after, you know, v Jung's red book visions came uh, just a few years after Crowley got his Cairo transmission. Um, Jung was very wary of these uh, theosophical movements. He thought yeah. they were playing with fire. And he thought that this was a huge mistake to engage with this stuff without a proper kind of uh, moral framework. Um, yeah. And so Jung would not have been surprised to see how things have turned out. Uh, he would have said, yeah, that's exactly what you would expect. Um, mm -hmm. None of yeah. these things are looking out for us necessarily, according to him. Although mm. that's not quite true. Um, it's just that the price we have to pay in order to ascend for Jung maybe is greater than we think. And everything casts a shadow. So for every step forward into that other plane, there'll be seismic changes, uh, both in your personal yeah. life and in your... So, so th th and that, that brings us to the whole cautionary thing about Hellier is that yeah. Yeah. I don't know where they're at right now with their story, but um, there is certainly, in, uh, towards the end of season two, a feeling that they are getting in very, very deep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it was just to finish my point, it was that we could add to the list of examples that you started there, uh, Twin Peaks, because in Twin Peaks, you do have oh, yeah. secret chiefs, yeah. a White Lodge and a Black Lodge, but yep. the, the White Lodge is losing 
right? Um, mm. In Twin Peaks, uh, it doesn't end well. Season three, so it might not. It's it's not so much that the Secret Chief stuff has become obsolete, but that the Secret Chiefs seem to be losing the fight. That seems to be mm. what the culture is telling us, you know, maybe. Yeah. Or at yeah. least that the outcome is very much doubt. Yeah. But so you don't like the idea of the secret chiefs. You find it a dangerous notion. I understand you as saying that. Okay. Well, full disclosure, I do believe that there are entities, but I don't trust any of them. Mm, probably wise. Um, I, I just don't know what criterion I have to assess I mean, if you just look at Hellier, it, they're being led to open a gate, right? It becomes clear in season two that there's a gate, which is one of the things that really got me scratching my head was like, why did they do the tone? You know, they have the, the three tones they're supposed yeah, to play. An F, an F major triad. Uh, yeah, just a simple major triad. And they're supposed to play these tones at the same time. Uh, and it's amazing. That session where Dana is channeling mm. this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. And she's really getting yeah. a clear message that they have to play these three notes and that, that was one of the moments where all the, the hair on my arms was prickling. I know, so beautiful. And she gets this, this channeling in the cave in Hellier that they went to in season one. They go back and that's where it happens. And then in the end, they play the tones in a cave in Somerset. Hmm. Even after Carl Pfeiffer went through the hypnosis and said, Hellier is the gate. I don't know why they didn't play the tones in Hellier. I'm glad they didn't because I don't want them to fucking open that gate. That question of gates is not trivial. I mean, the question of gates comes up obviously repeatedly in Hellier. And one gate that's mentioned is the possibility that all of the gray alien activity that is really at the center of all this Fortiana and all of these UFO contact experiences and so on. The figure, nay, the archetype of the gray alien, uh, the idea that that came from a particular working that Alistair Crowley did in the first decade of the 20th century called the lamb working. Mm -hmm. And he drew a picture, which you see repeatedly in Hellier, of what looks like a gray alien. Yeah. And that's Lamb. And that was it. Yeah. And that was an entity he called Lamb. By the way, one of my favorite occult writers, Alan Chapman, mm -hmm. wrote a really interesting debunking of the idea that Lamb is a gray. Okay. Basically, they go deep into Crowley's writings from around that time and say, no, what he was trying to do was trying to contact Lao Tzu or somebody very like Lao Tzu, basically a figure of ancient Chinese wisdom. And that that weird drawing of what looks like a gray alien is actually Crowley's somewhat ham-fisted attempt to draw a Chinese person. So suffice it to say, you know, it's not inarguable that this lamb figure was that particular entity, but that's the whole problem Yeah, with dealing with entities. There's no entity caller ID. You don't know who's on the other end of the line. So if you are the recipient of a storm of synchronicities, as the Newkirks and their associates certainly are, you know, something you wrote in our email exchange about Diviner's Time, there was a quote from something else that you're writing, something to the effect of like, the salient thing to know about a synchronicity experience is that you have the feeling of being seen. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Being addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Being addressed. That's right. right. That's, yeah. you know, that that's what's important. And this is absolutely true. The difference between just a weird coincidence that's just sort of a one-off and a synchronicity that is forming part of a pattern, uh, a series or a sequence that seems to be leading you on just like a trail of breadcrumbs, that feeling is the feeling of being addressed, but you never know who is addressing you. Right. You never know who's on the other end of the line. And so this leads to a state of um, well, paranoia. Like you're constantly getting messages, but you don't know who from. And sometimes entities will self-identify. They'll tell you who they are, but then maybe they're lying. Yeah. Or maybe as with the secret cipher of the euthanauts, you take what seem to be unambiguous messages and you plug it into a cipher, You plug, or it doesn't have to be that cipher. It can be some larger system of correspondences by which magicians understand the world around them and then realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm not being lied to exactly, but I'm being misdirected. What this thing is actually saying is blah, something else. Right. Or and then you might, yeah. or you might find something beyond that. You might climb that hill to discover there's yet a taller hill that you still have to climb just to get to the bottom of this one particular meaning. Right. And is it an alien? Is it a fucking Bigfoot? Is it a fairy? Is it, yeah. you know, is it an ancient god? Who the fuck knows? There's a cover, the, the new cover of Jacques Vallée's Passport to Mangonia. Uh, the one that if you buy it from Amazon now, you'll get this cover, shows a gray alien holding a bunch of masks. Right. And like taking one off and putting one on. And that's what it feels like, that you're dealing with some intelligence, but it is constantly putting on and taking off masks. And this leads you to the sort of feeling, actually, we've talked about this before when we were talking about Philip K. Dick, like the feeling of playing tennis with an opponent you can't see. You hit the ball... And it goes in sailing over the net into the darkened half of the court, the side of the court you don't see. And you hear a distant thwack, and then you see the ball coming back out at you. That feeling, you're always on the back foot. It leads you to the sort of state of paranoia. I remember once writing to you in one of our earlier emails that, you know, doing any kind of investigation in this terrain makes you feel like you're in a film noir where there are these shadowy entities and you're always trying to get to the bottom of it. But every time you do, there's some layer of complexity that takes you to a deeper layer of what feels like conspiracy or just some kind of vast design. And you're only catching one little tiny bit of it, but enough of it that you can perceive as it were in your peripheral vision, the true vastness of this pattern. You can't perceive the pattern, but you can perceive there is a pattern, and it's far larger than you had formerly suspected. And that feeling of the plunging from one layer to another and the new vistas of vast complexity open to you at each stage, there's a kind of a specific feeling of that. It's not always a good feeling. It can make you feel like you're losing your goddamn mind. And, and there are moments in Hellier where, you, where they, they do seem to have that feeling where things are getting yeah. a little too, especially when they go to Somerset towards the end, Somerset, Kentucky, which uh, according to the people they talk to and what they read about um, is uh, a center of activity for 
really bad cults. Um, they get yeah, emails like from, fucking human sacrifice, yeah. human trafficking. Who the fuck knows what? <laughs> and the connection between cults and subterranean goblins is actually actually has a history. If you look at the Shaver stuff, Richard Shaver was that his name? Who wrote about the Darrow? These little people who are the degenerate descendants of uh, a non-human species that existed on Earth at some point. They are these goblins who live underground and who practice black magic and build strange machines. And they have allies on Earth who are evil sorcerers. And that's kind of what the Hellier crew is getting from people in Somerset, is that this stuff is happening around them. So at the end, they're like, they feel surrounded. They're in this town. They've been sent emails from a woman who's now in jail, who says that she's uncovered the activity of these cults in the area. And they are being led there by the synchronicities right into the heart of it to do a ritual to open a gate. <laughs> it's like, it's crazy. And so it becomes imperative that they just impose some kind of framework, some kind of theory at some point. And Greg comes up with Pan. This is all about the rebirth of Pan. I think that was a good thing because at least then they had a kind of something to hang on to. Yeah. But then they seem to decide that they're being called to let Pan back into the world and that that's somehow something that must happen and that's good. But again, I'm wondering, well, is it good? I mean, look at the John Keel stuff. What did that lead to? It led to a bridge collapsing. Mm. You know, and it's easy now to say, oh, the Mothman was warning us about the bridge collapsing. <laughs> yeah, well, you could just as easily say that the activity got so crazy that it made the bridge collapse. Um, mm. We don't know where. Again, causality yeah. points every which way. James Hillman wrote a book called uh, Pan in the Nightmare. It's a very good book. But in, he has a little chapter in this book about the connection of Pan with synchronicity. He starts by saying that Pan's hour, traditionally, according to the Greeks, Pan's hour was noon, which is counterintuitive because Pan is associated with nightmares, with fear, with panic, with darkness, with the opacity of nature and all that stuff. Right, right. But his hour is noon. He's like, why is his hour noon? He says, his hour is noon because noon is the time that pops out of the clock. It's like the moment that's the self-willed event, right? Noon is like, boom, where there are no shadows. Everything is clear. Everything is revealed. And he connects this idea of noon with those moments in life, like um, these sudden events, these sudden eruptions that you can trace back to a series of causes, but they have their own kind of self-willed agency. They kind of pop out of the series of causes and become event. We've talked about this on the show before, the event in the, the kind of like imaginal sense of like all these causes add up to an event that exceeds those causes. And so that's noon. That's why noon is Pan's hour. So then he says, well, so Pan is connected with these these sudden emergent events. Because of course, because we get the word panic from Pan because Pan would just show up out of the blue 
and scare the shit out of you. So Pan is kind of the archetype of these sudden emergent events, which for Hillman connects him with synchronicities because those are mm. just regular mm. causal little effects that pop out because of their meaning. They like, they, they spring out, they're like noons. But then he says, I'll read this part because this is crazy. He says, the spontaneous panic out of noon's stillness reappears in another configuration, the cobalt or little demon, also said by Rosher to cause panic and nightmare. This being too has a sexual connotation that is phallic, dwarf-like, fertile, both lucky and fearful. He talks about Herbert Silberer, uh, one of Freud's uh, disciples, taking up the cobalt in relation to accidental events. So he's connecting Pan with goblins. Hmm. Um, Silberer attributed chance events to the spontaneous appearance of these cobalt figures. And so I was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of crazy. We got Pan and the, and, the, and the goblins. And then he connects all that with fourth order of time. So you've got causality, time, space, and then what Hillman calls spontaneity. And he says it's exactly what Jung called synchronicity. So that Pan is kind of the archetype of or diviner's time diviner's time exactly exactly and 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 pan becomes the archetype of those events so in a sense like they say no goblins in the show but in fact all those little synchronicities according to silberer would be each of them a cobalt a goblin ah interesting my point is this i think that that line they took was useful but i think they were casting their net very very wide they were kind of reaching for the archetype of the whole thing but i think that what's Communicating with them is not is something more specific than Pan, is my feeling. There's more to this story than just the rebirth of Pan in the modern world. It's like, I don't know. There's there's something going on and I don't I don't quite trust it. <laughs> I, I think that no. I think they have to be careful. Yeah. Well, I think that that's true of anybody uh treading in this territory. We've been talking a lot lately about being careful. Mm-hmm. Right. In the most recent Patreon extra, we ended up getting into a conversation. Basically, is it worth it to have gone through the disruptions in your life that spiritual experiences generally and occult weird experiences in particular um, tend, tend to cause? And my feeling is that I'm glad that I've been through the things that I've been through, but also I feel like as an educator, I really can't in good conscience recommend that people run out there and perform their own investigations and, and throw themselves on the fire in that way. Because like you said, you know, occult history is just scattered with broken people. Yeah. Um, it almost reminds me of, like I saw an interview with a, guy who used to be a mafia capo who got out of it and is now a like a Christian minister. Some magazine had like the 50 most powerful men in the mafia. He's like, I'm the only one in that list of 50 who's still alive and not in jail. Right. And it's just sort of like, yeah, you know, mob life looks pretty glamorous on TV, but it's not good for your health. And I can't help but feeling the same thing for some of this stuff. Um, that being said, I being a little bit of a hypocrite, because as I said, you know, I've courted some dangers in my life. I, I kind of want to get into that because I don't want to make it about me, but like, um, no, but I, I think it's clear. And we talked about that on the extra and we also yeah. talked about it with BW Pow. BW Pow, yeah. We, we got a bit of flack on, on Patreon from some listeners fairly, I think, because I mean, just as you said yourself in that extra, your life is, has been in, 
immeasurably enriched by these experiences. Yeah. So you could say that anything that's worth doing in life, you know, <laughs> that there's going to be a risk involved. Um, but as Paul Weston, an occultist from Glastonbury, mentions on his blog about Hellier, which I really liked what he wrote, he's like, you have to realize that the the effects ripple out. It's not just a game you're playing with yourself. The bridge collapse in the Mothman case killed a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but of course, the thing is that once you get picked out, you, you can't you can't not do it. That's the problem. It's yeah. like ignoring it. It can be just as dangerous. There comes a point where there are crossroads where you can say, I can turn away now. Like John Keel at some point was like, ultimately, these beings are malicious. I am not dealing with them anymore. And you mm. can walk away. Um, but you can't choose that crossroad. There's, there are times where you just need to go. And if you ignore it, it gets worse. So it's yep. kind of it's kind of this hero's call thing, right? The hero yep. denies the call and then suffers some consequence and then has to heed the call. Okay. Well, if we think in those terms, which I like a lot, let's say you're Luke Skywalker or some other archetypal hero embarking on a very dangerous quest, whether it's to blow up the Death Star or conduct a paranormal investigation, whatever. Speaking broadly and in such a way that we're not dependent upon the particularities of like whether it's a paranormal investigation or blowing up the Death Star, but speaking very generally, what are the things that are going to make your quest come out right? And what are the things that if you do them will make it come out badly for you? It seems to me one thing right off the bat is choose your allies well. Having, for example, a guide or a protector you know, that's like the whole Joseph Campbell hero's journey thing. There's always a, like a Senex, a kind of a, an older, wise Obi-Wan Kenobi type who is keeping an eye on you, who might, in fact, probably will at a certain point leave you. And then it's just you. But speaking just sort of generally, that would seem to me to be one thing. Choose yeah. your allies well. Associate with good people. And that's something I think the Hellier folks did well. I think they're a good mm -hmm. team and they're very, I think another thing is to keep one foot in firmly on the ground. Um, mm -hmm. I think that uh, if you're going to engage with this stuff, you need to have a really strong, I think a, a BW got into this, a really strong domestic life is what how he put it. Um, yeah. You know, the Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics couldn't begin the Kabbalah until they were married and established and had mm. a very strong, solid foundation to their lives so that they wouldn't just drift off into the, into the void. Um, yeah, that's good. So that, that's good. That's like, and, and also a sense of humor, I think, is key. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the difference between the people channeling aliens in Sedona and the people who have experienced these things but have remained in touch with uh, consensual reality is that you need to have a certain a sense of humor is basically just a, a token of distance between yourself and your experience so you're like this is what i'm living through i can take a step back i'm not i, I don't completely this is what jung said really called uh, identification right or inflation of the ego when when mm -hmm. an archetype comes and you identify with the archetype so deeply that it Basically, uh, you just become a conduit for a blind force that has nothing to do with you. You know, like yeah, ultimately, yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't want to end up there. But at the same time, no. you do that not by denying the archetype. You do it by 
accepting by taking the call. That's the thing. That's why Jung uh, was so careful about um, advising the kind of uh, path of individuation to people is that you need to have your shit worked, figured out before you do this. You need to have a stable uh, situation. So Paul Weston and his warning to the Hellier folks at the end, he's like, make sure that your health is good, that you have like good friends, that your sense of consensual reality is very strong because things are going to get crazy from here on. According to him, they're right at the cusp of, of, of the kind of, um, uh, Basically, he says that they're they're right at the edge of what Kenneth Grant called uh, the tunnels of Set. Basically, the kind of obverse of the Tree of Life, the 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 dark underworld where those typhonic entities live. So, so uh, yeah. So what that suggests is that some of the company that you keep is not just other human beings, but also the entities that you choose. And, but the thing is that, from that point of view, modernity has solved the problem. You don't believe in any entities. You don't believe there are entities. And that not believing is the safest way to play it. I sometimes think like Wikipedia actually has a kind of an eldritch energy to it in a weird way that every time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but every time you look up on Wikipedia an article to deal with something, anything, in the weirdest fear, anything that's sort of paranormal or paranormal adjacent or occult or occult adjacent or spiritual. I realize that these articles are collectively written. And I know that there is some organization, some volunteer group of Reddit atheists, skeptic movement people who edit Wikipedia entries to make them more in line with science and reason. And I, I understand that those are very real world forces here, but it's almost uncanny how in any given Wikipedia article, in the subjects I've mentioned, how cunningly they're written in such a way that any time any strange possibility rears its head, they sort of head it off at the past. They find ways to neutralize it or to contain it, to dismiss it, to wave it away. Mm -hmm. And Wikipedia is for the vast majority of people who are ever looking up anything. It is the only source that they get for their information. And so you can look at Wikipedia as a vast disinformation project that seems in a way continuous with the kinds of things that John Keel writes about in the Mothman prophecies. So one of the things that Keel talks about from the beginning of that book, and it's a leitmotif that runs through it, are the men in black or people who are pretending to be military officers, people who show up in mysteriously well-preserved vintage cars, like models of cars that you don't see on the road anymore, and yet they look like they just drove off the lot. Very often people with olive complexions and sharp features, very often people who show a surprising, like shocking degree of knowledge of the individuals they interview. Like we know you were talking with such and so person, like how the fuck could you possibly have known that? Like this happened to John Keel a bunch of times. These people would show up and be like, we hear you've been talking to John Keel. People who investigate UFOs, I don't know, it's kind of dangerous. You shouldn't do that. Um, 
they're not always saying it in very intelligent ways. Often there are these funny stories of like these men in black or these fake military officers not knowing how to use a pen, right. not knowing how to eat jello, yeah. being flummoxed by really normal shit, uh, almost like everything in a normal human living room is alien technology to them. Like they put on and a so human like, costume and they're not very... <laughs> and they're not good yeah, at it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you see the same thing. Like there's this weird, it seems coordinated. I mean, you read the Mothman prophecies, it seems like maybe there's some central intelligence or organization that's directing these messages, but there seems to be some kind of, I don't know, conspiracy or something, some patterned and coordinated activity to systematically suppress people's knowledge of and interest in UFOs or paranormal phenomena generally or the occult or whatever. And I look at Wikipedia, I'm like, this thing looks like it's an expression of that same thing. So getting back to, you know, secret chiefs, it's in a way easy for me to imagine that something like the secret chiefs or the third order or you want it, whatever you want to call it, that something like that does exist because it's easy for me to imagine when I look at the complicated web of disinformation that's passed around about, you know, just kind of weird subjects generally, the strange feeling that that too feels coordinated. And yet there are actual flesh and blood human beings who are editing Wikipedia. And if you ask them, are you part of some conspiracy to suppress occult knowledge, they would laugh at you. You'd be like, no, I'm part of a group working to make Wikipedia sciency. But then again, as we see in Hellier, the deeper you go into some of these strange connections, the more you realize like people don't have to be aware of being a part of a conspiracy to be a part of it. There right. can be some logic that is driving the situation that is not identical to any particular human player. The thing is that I guess we need to know what we're talking about when we say modernity, because one of the things that Peter Kingsley in his new book on Jung, which I highly recommend, it's called Catafalque. It's very good. Uh, Peter Kingsley points something out that's very kind of a no-brainer, really, like obviously. Uh, modernity is the reification of anthropos, of man as, you know, man in that classical sense of humanity as mm -hmm. the only intelligence. The, in other words, the only daimon, the only thinking thing. But if you, if you look at the world through a kind of more Jungian or traditional perspective, then everything is archetypes. So the anth anthropos too is an archetype. It's, it's an archetype among archetypes. And if it wants to assert itself as the dominant archetype, it will engage in denying the other ones, mm. pushing them out, constantly pushing them out, which relates, uh. which relates to um, another guy I've been reading recently, um, Eric Vogelin, uh, the political philosopher who argued very forcefully throughout his career that modernity was a Gnostic movement, that modernity was not a religious or irreligious. Modernity was a choice that medieval people made to embrace a particular, you know, a particular heresy, quote unquote, a particular way of approaching the divine and to basically uh, make humanity itself God. And I mean, that is affirmed in science constantly. Humanism means what it says. 
yeah, humanism is a religion of humanity. And I mean, Auguste Comte in the 19th century actually invented a religion of humanism. He wanted to have churches and he was going to be like the kind of Christ figure for it. And there would be priests and it would be a religion of humanity. You can see the the remnants or the echoes of that in the symbolism surrounding stuff like the United Nations, you know, the picture of the earth surrounded by, you know, stars or laurels, that kind of like right. all that stuff. If you read that through a Gnostic lens, you can see how modernity in a sense is a kind of uh, inflation of the human ego to deny the existence of other daimonic entities. So when right. the Wikipedia secularist is boxing something like Hellier in its place, they're putting things in their places, what they are is saying is not saying there's no God. They're saying there's only one God and it's the human humanity itself. That's what Vogelin called eminentizing the eschaton, taking what was non-human, right. which is outside and putting it in the human. The problem is that between Anthropos as a kind of archetype and each one of us as a human being, there's a huge difference. Each one of us is inhabited by all kinds of daimonic forces. So in a sense, when you were saying the, the safest thing would be to disbelieve this stuff, if you just disbelieve it, you're kind of banishing it. Jung would say, no way. All you're doing is you're making it act unconsciously. So you have stuff like Hiroshima. Hiroshima being the emergence of an archetype Without anyone planning to do that, that's like, but they did everything by the numbers. They called the project Trinity. They had all kinds of religious uh, connotations to their terminology and nomenclature related to the project. And in the end, it's this kind of uh, cosmic religious event, Hiroshima, the nuclear bomb, the splitting of the atom, which no one intended as a kind of religious act, but has huge religious implications because in denying the existence of all these other archetypes, all we're doing is we're just basically allowing them to uh, manifest wearing a human mask. You know, all they have to do is put a human mask and then they're in, you know. Oh, so, I see what you're saying. You know, That's some, interesting. You know what I'm getting at? So I'm trying to articulate well, Jung it. Said some, Jung said something similar about the archetype of Wotan. His understanding of Nazism was that, you know, this long slumbering god, Odin or Wotan, to use the Germanic, uh, version of it. That's the term he used. Yeah. And the name he used was Wotan. Yeah. Wotan is coming back. And yet, because it was not understood and the full awareness of that was suppressed or understood in tendentious or misleading ways, that the wildness, the savagery of the old god could rampage unchecked and that the violence and horror of the Nazi regime was the violence and horror of an archetype invoked but improperly understood and improperly engaged with. Yeah, exactly. But that's a Jungian way of thinking, like, okay, if you deny the entities, the entities will, you know, drive them out through the front door, they'll climb in through the kitchen window. Exactly. A god denied is a grumpy god. But I want to throw another idea. I love this idea that uh, that modernity is a kind of Gnostic project. And it's a project of like, okay, we're going to reduce all of this confusing and menacing welter of entities to one. It's the perfect entity because we already know what it is. It is man, the human being. Now, imagine that that actually works, that when you're denying all the other divinities and all the other entities, you're not repressing them and forcing them to, you know, pick the lock on the back door. 
you're just driving them out. Maybe they just die of inanition, you know, denied their customary nourishment of prayer and devotion. They just kind of shrivel up and blow away. Imagine that actually happens and we are left in a cosmos that is ensouled by precisely one entity, and that is ourselves. Well, I'll tell you one thing is it certainly makes sense of what Colin Wilson understands as the archetypal situation of modernity, which he describes in The Occult, which we recently did a show on, as the drama of the rationalist suffocating in the dusty room of his personal consciousness, caught in the vicious circle of boredom and futility, which in turn leads to still further boredom and futility. And from this point of view, modernity as a kind of Gnostic project has succeeded in creating a world that is perfectly understandable, perfectly conformable to our will, tractable, uh, a world for us. And yet, now that we find ourselves there, it's toxic. We can't live there. The fundamental experience of that is claustrophobia. Speaking of Wotan, that's his problem that comes out in his epic tantrum that he has in the second act of Wagner's Die Valkyrie, where he realizes that though he is the all-father and the king of gods, his power is from a certain point of view pitiable. It's the lamest power ever. He can create everything, but all he can do is create things that are hypostases or projections of himself. Right. And that's us. That's the problem of the modern, right? So if we're trying to come up with a rational accounting of risks here, how do we calculate the risk of what the Newkirks and their associates are doing in Hellier? Chasing entities. They're opening up doors that have long been closed and they're chasing these entities that could turn out to be pretty nasty. They might be led down some pretty dark paths and you wonder, okay, so like... How do you do that safely? And there probably is no way to do that kind of entity work safely. I mean, you can do it more or less safely. You can banish, you can work with protection, things that we've talked about on this show. But nevertheless, the enterprise is inherently dangerous. But then somebody could also say, well, staying exactly where we are, you know, suffocating in the dusty room of our personal consciousnesses, that is... It's not a risk because all futures have already been mapped out and planned. The nature of this deity is this is a deity of planning, you know, this humanist deity. This entity is all about foreclosing possibilities and managing them. Mm -hmm. uh, its perfect expression is the actuarial mathematics used in insurance. And from that point of view... Your life is perfectly safe. It's just that it's also a life that leads ineluctably to suicide. Because if you are trapped in Votan's dilemma, in a world where nothing new can ever happen, there's no purpose to existence, at least so far as I can tell. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon.
Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.